Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. This case begins on December 4th, 1998, when 14-year-old Michael Polite met up with his best friend, Josh Sansuzzi. They met at a general store in the small town that they lived in of Hopewell, Missouri, as arranged. Michael had been home alone, so had decided to invite Josh to sleep over. The two hung out for a bit and then headed to Michael's house to play video games. Around midnight, they decided to head out to the railroad tracks near Michael's house. Michael made a fire, which was not something that was unusual. It was apparently something that a lot of the kids in the neighborhood often did for fun. They didn't stay out long before going back to the house. Around the same time, Michael's mum, 40-year-old Rita Polite, got home from her job at a local bar. They all said goodnight and headed to bed. Michael, blissfully unaware that a chain of events were about to unfold that would change his life forever. Just before 6.30am, both boys woke to a smoke-filled house. They crawled towards the front door and Michael yelled for his mum, There was no reply. He and Josh tried using the garden hose to put out the fire, but it wasn't long enough to reach. Panicked and scared, he made his way to her room and was confronted with a horrifying scene. There was blood on her legs all over the walls and she was on fire from the waist up. Fire department. We had a fire. I heard Hopewell, Rita Polite and Edward Polite's house. It's come off 8 Highway. I remember the hair on the back of my neck raising up. Um, I, di- I didn't know what to do. I mean, what, what, is, what is a 14-year-old kid supposed to do in that moment? Fire department. Harvey. Yeah. We got a call. We're on the line. There's somebody in the house. We're calling neighbors. I can still hear it. I can hear the fire cracking. There's, there's times I wake up in the morning and I can smell it. Rita had been brutally murdered, bludgeoned to death, and then set on fire, all allegedly while the two boys slept a couple of rooms away. We have a possible homicide. Sheriff's Department is securing the scene at this time. It's with me. It's going to be with me forever. I run in the house, and I run until all the slack is gone. And I knelt down to see what I could see. And when I did, I I seen my mother's legs, and I seen blood on her legs, and uh, she was on fire from her waist up. When Michael's older sisters, Melanie and Crystal, arrived, they found him in the back of a police car. Both Michael and Josh were questioned relentlessly by police following the murder, both denying any involvement. But two days later, Michael was arrested. Years later, he would say that they weren't questioning him anymore. They were telling him he had done it. Investigators said that he showed a lack of emotion in the aftermath of the crime. He didn't cry at the scene, nor once he was at the sheriff's department. If anything, he'd only shown anger and defiance. They also said that an accelerant-sniffing dog alerted them to Michael's shoes on the morning of the murder, and that he had failed a voice stress test. Another devastating blow to Michael's case was that Josh gave a videotaped interview to police that poked a hole in Michael's version of events. Josh had slept on the floor next to where Michael had been sleeping in his bed. In that videotape, Josh indicated to police that he woke up to a noise in the middle of the night, and Michael wasn't in the room. Now, that just sealed the deal for the cops that Michael was guilty. Just a side note, years later, Josh actually told the TV show 48 Hours, which was his first television interview since that night, that he doesn't remember ever saying that. And that if he did say it, that it was maybe at a weak point, as they had been barraging him with questions. Instead, in that interview with 48 Hours, he said that although he did wake up briefly in the night, 
he never saw Michael missing from the room. He remembers telling his mum at the time that they kept saying that he was lying and that he didn't even know if he was telling the truth anymore. In 2002, three years after that night, and after rejecting a deal from the prosecution to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter and spend a maximum of 15 years in prison, Michael's trial began. Josh tried to say that it wasn't that he hadn't seen Michael in bed, it was that from his position on the floor, he couldn't see if he was even in the bed or not. The prosecutors hammered home that accelerant was found on Michael's shoes. And even though the defence claimed that it must have been due to the fire at the railway tracks, the prosecution came back with even more damaging evidence against Michael. A claim that he had confessed to the crime during a suicide attempt while in prison awaiting his trial. Three witnesses who worked at the juvenile detention centre wrote in their reports that Michael had said, I haven't cared since I killed my mum. Michael argued that he'd said, I haven't cared since they killed my mum, alluding to whoever the real killer or killers might be. For whatever reason, when it was the defence's turn to present their case, Michael, now 17, didn't take the stand. The defence argued that there was no direct evidence tying Michael to the crime. No murder weapon had been found, and despite the violence of the attack, Michael had no injuries and no blood on his clothes. Now, remember we said there was blood all over her legs, and it was a pretty gruesome attack. So, undoubtedly, there would be blood splatter that got onto the killer's clothes. At the end of the three-day trial, the jury deliberated for just over four hours and found Michael Polite guilty of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. His sisters and his aunt and uncle, Chuck and Patsy, who actually lived next door to Michael and his mum, all stood by him and believed his innocence. I can't describe the feelings, uh, helplessness, like, you know, there's no reason to exist anymore. Because he was now 18, he was actually sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary, which scarily was once called the bloodiest 47 acres in America. On his first day, he got beaten up and raped. So to stay safe, he joined a gang, became a skinhead and got multiple prison tattoos. He said that it wasn't the way he was raised, but he needed to fit in. Sadly, he also did become addicted to heroin. The trial was over, but the fight to clear his name was never far from his mind. Five years after his conviction, Michael wrote to the Midwest Innocence Project, and they agreed to take on his case, largely because of the age that he had been when all of this occurred. The organisation worked on it for years, and finally a new defence team came on board. Picking the case apart, they were convinced that Michael had been convicted for no other reason that he was a kid and an easy target. Disputing the claim that he wasn't emotional enough, they argued that trauma doesn't always look like what people think it should look like, especially when you're a 14-year-old boy. They also disputed the scientific evidence used to convict him, starting with the prosecution's claim that an accelerant was used to set Rita on fire. Now, they'd said that the accelerant was found on Michael's shoes, but there wasn't actually proof that an accelerant had been used in the fire started on Rita. The fire investigator had come to the scene and immediately determined that it was a fuel-fed fire, based on just visual patterns, which at the time did violate the standards of fire investigation because there should always be lab testing. Now, that might sound familiar to you, 
If you follow my TikTok account, then I actually covered the case of Claude Francis Garrett, who was wrongfully in prison and exonerated for the death of his fiancée in a house fire. Again, it was a case that was based on eyeballing the scene by the fire investigator. It just scares me that there could be so many other innocent people in prison that have had this happen to them on in fires, where the fire investigator is literally just eyeballing the situation. It's just crazy. But back to Michael, a flaw was also found in the shoe theory. Chemicals used in the shoe manufacturing process were wrongly identified as gasoline, and even the Missouri State Crime Lab agreed. In fact, in 2020, the Crime Lab went on record saying, quote, It is now known that solvents found in footwear adhesives have similarities to gasoline, but that in the late 1990s, this knowledge was not widely known. It shouldn't be this hard. I mean, we're the greatest country in the world, but yet here I am after six years of discovering that I was wrongfully convicted with false science and my jury was lied to and I'm still sitting in a prison cell. Like, I don't understand why. They don't want to admit that they got anything wrong. And I haven't even been in the courtroom. The only physical evidence that the, case, that the state used to convict me for this crime has been proven false. And they tested three samples at the crime scene and none was positive for any accelerant, including gasoline. But still they used this testimony, the dog sniff evidence and my shoes as evidence that I set my mother on fire with gasoline. In a bombshell statement, Michael claimed that he was sure of who was really responsible for his mum's murder. But I will come back to that, so hang tight. For years, his lawyers unsuccessfully tried to get his conviction overturned. But in 2021 came an unexpected twist. A bill passed in Missouri giving juvenile offenders convicted of serious crimes a second chance. Now remember Michael's 14 at the time of the crime. So off the back of that bill, he was granted parole. In April 2022, he walked out of a Missouri state prison at the age of 38. He left prison doing one of the things that he enjoyed most before he went in, riding his bike. He told his family and the crowd gathered outside that he was going to take a bike ride from the prison to the rail tracks, leaving the same way that he came in, riding a bicycle. But although he was released, he hadn't actually been exonerated, which meant that he still had a felony attached to his name. He moved in with his sister Melanie and he got his prison tattoos covered up with new art, found a job as a carpenter and got his driving license. A month later, it looked hopeful that his name would finally be cleared when the current state prosecutor said that he actually agreed with Michael's new lawyers that the scientific evidence used wasn't exactly 100% accurate and was pretty problematic and that had the case come across his desk today, he would never have taken it to trial. Even five members of the jury in a sworn affidavit wanted Michael's conviction overturned. The case into Rita's murder was reopened. But a couple of weeks later, Michael was dealt another blow. Now, just another quick side note. If you're a UK listener, the judicial system in the US is super, super different to ours and is very heavily connected to politics. Again, unlike ours here in the UK. So the district attorneys are often elected by local voters. So the blow that came to Michael was that the DA, the district attorney, who'd agreed with his defence team, had actually lost his bid for re-election which meant that reopening Rita's case, or Michael's case, was also stopped. In an interview, Josh had said that he had always been racked with guilt and what-ifs. 
When they were getting ready for bed that night, Michael had said to him that he could either sleep in the living room on the fold-out couch or on the floor of his room. Josh chose Michael's room, but feels that if he had chosen the living room, the intruder may have seen him and left, and that he is 100% convinced that it was not Michael who killed Rita. Now, before we go any further, let's discuss who Michael's theory of who the killer was. His own father. Michael's mum and dad, Edward and Rita, had gotten married as teenagers, but they'd had their struggles. They were young. Edward was mentally abusive and cheated on Rita a lot, but she loved him, so she stayed. Until, eventually, love just wasn't enough. There were allegations of domestic violence on both sides, and a year before the murder, there had been an incident where police were called, with Michael telling an officer that his dad had pushed his mum to the floor and choked her. The couple finally divorced in the summer of 1998, which was literally a couple of months before Rita was killed. If Michael is correct, it means that his own father stood by and let his son take the fall for a murder that he committed. Michael and his sister's theory was that their dad was furious over the financial terms of the divorce. Just four days before the murder, a judge had finalised that Rita would get alimony, child support, part of Edward's pension and his 401k, which for UK listeners, a 401k is our equivalent of a workplace pension. As the ruling was read out, Edward yelled in court, you will never live to see a dime of that money. An adult boot print had been found at the back of the house and police did interview Edward at the time, but he had an alibi. He was 80 miles away. Michael's new defence team, however, felt that the investigators didn't dig deep enough back then because from their new investigation, they believed that Edward hired his cousin Johnny to murder Rita. Witnesses even placed Johnny near the crime scene on the morning of the murder, just as the first responders arrived. But the jury never got to hear about the financial motive that Edward had, nor that his cousin was spotted close to Rita's house. Michael and his sisters haven't had anything to do with Edward, but they did ask him after Michael's release if he had anything to do with their mum's death. He again denied it. He actually told local reporters that were covering Michael's release that while he was grateful and happy that Michael had been released, he had been nothing but cooperative with police back then and there was nothing more he could have done. So as it stands today, yes, Michael is enjoying freedom, but always with a black cloud hanging over his head. And as for Rita, nobody knows exactly who ended her life on that night. The person actually did it, wakes up every morning, and he probably doesn't give it a second thought. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying being here, please leave a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts and click on the link in today's case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group for more information and relevant photos. Until next week, stay safe.